very much, Bachelor. Um, and I'm delighted to welcome back uh, Rory and Ian for the panel discussion. So if you're able to unmute now, thank you both uh, very much for joining us. We do uh, really appreciate it. Hello there. Hello. Thanks for now, having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, to kick us off, I wonder if actually, Ian, I might pose a question to you first. Um, and the question is around the fundamental motives framework that we just discussed. So obviously, we use that framework uh, in the paper and to, to differentiate between elements that have a strong shared genetic component um, and elements that don't. But I wonder, are there any other frameworks that you would use or you have used elsewhere to identify what I suppose are those basic human truths around which you can standardize globally? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess, you know, I probably would comment by saying, I think using evolutionary psychology is a framework in itself. It's a way of, of looking at things and explaining things. So, you know, so that in itself is a framework. And then there's other tools within that uh, that we use. Um, the one, as a, I mean, I'm an advertising planner by trade. Uh, and so I come from a, a generation of, of planners who like to have a problem to solve. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's so much the case nowadays, but uh, but I kind of, uh, I, I find there's, uh, there's a thing called the mismatch hypothesis. I find that very useful in particularly with behavioral problems. I think there's an idea that's come out of behavioral economics that, you know, biases and heuristics are flaws of thinking. You know, I'd probably say they're not flaws, yeah. they're features, but the environment has changed. Uh, and this causes a mismatch. Uh, now, I guess an example that'd be easy for everyone to get is to think about uh, sugar consumption, right? So in the ancestral environment, it was perfectly adaptive to want to gorge on sugar because it was hard to find, and, and it was only around uh, in abundance, you know, for a very short time during the year. Of course, now, if you were, walk into an all-night garage and, you know, try and buy something to eat that isn't packed with sugar, forget about it, you know. And so it's become maladaptive because it's so ubiquitous uh, in the environment. So, you, you know, looking at, whenever you see a bit of behaviour that doesn't seem to make sense, I think... It's a good lens to look at it and say, is this a mismatch uh, in some way? That's awesome, fantastic. I will jump in right uh, uh, really quickly. And uh, also, it's similar example is uh, our quest for uh, attaining information. Prior uh, in prior times, information would be available resource, but uh, nowadays it's abundant and. Uh, uh, but we still crave it. We, we still look for it everywhere, and uh, maybe to the point where it's maladaptive. Yes, if you read a Roman cookbook, by the way, the only real way you could actually produce a sweet thing, there was no refined sugar and no cane sugar. The only way you could produce anything that was sweet was using honey, which was obviously extremely scarce and consequently quite expensive. 
So Roman cookbooks are, are highly unusual in that respect because uh, sugar I, I didn't really exist. And the only substitute for sugar that then existed, as it were, was, um, you know, pretty rare and, uh, and uh, you know, a scarce good. And so that, that is undoubtedly a maladaptive instinct. Mm. Um, it's a case where an instinct that served us well for a million years suddenly didn't in times of abundance. I think it's a really interesting point and I suppose it makes me think that things which are I suppose related to those fundamental motives or whichever framework you want to use are going to be those that are easier to persuade people to take those kind of behaviours or easier to have people um, emphasise with them in advert. It's not to say it's impossible to get people to go against that like you're saying to not eat sugary foods and to eat healthier um, it, it's just more difficult because it's going against those sort of fundamental motives. So I guess it's the, oh. when you link it back to mar marketing, I, I suppose using those kind of elements in advertising, even if that's not the, the aim of the product or the service itself, um, sort of should encourage or help people to make that um, behavior or that decision. So um, I, 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 I was just gonna say, I once uh, tried to persuade the uh, state government here to, uh, to put pictures of giant spiders on the motorway, you know, beside appeals to slow down, you know, because we have an innate uh, mechanism, you know, to be scared of spiders and snakes, but but we don't have one to be scared of driving like a lunatic, you know, because uh, that's a behaviour that just that didn't exist in the environment when minds were formed, you know, uh, it, it didn't fly. I, I've got a perfect story about that, actually, which is a wonderful case of something exploiting something universal and then getting it contextually wrong, which doesn't come from advertising. It comes from children's television and from the programme, which I think is produced in the UK, Peppa Pig. Now, fear of spiders, along with snakes, is more or less universal and instinctive. We're actually born with it. OK. And so, sure enough, you have a very nice storyline in Peppa Pig. It's it, for those of you who want who know the oeuvre well. It's called Mr. Skinny Legs, the specific episode, and Peppa is deeply alarmed by a spider which she finds in the doll's house upstairs, and she goes downstairs and is frightened of spiders. Now that is recognisable to everybody all over the world. And then, because the programme's made in Britain, Daddy Pig says, "Don't worry, Peppa. Spiders are very small and can't possibly hurt you." No problem at all in the UK. The programme went out unedited in Australia. And of course, you had half a million parents going, you can't tell our kids that. You know, practically everything in Australia is trying to kill you. And so yeah. it was a wonderful bit of advice. It was a response to a universal, which was totally appropriate to the UK. Mm -hmm. We should try yeah. and banish our children's fear of spiders because in the UK it's irrational. <laughs> OK, in Australia, a fear of spiders is still extremely adaptive, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because um, sometimes if I, if I ever use that example, you know, I've got a, I, I was doing a presentation, so I went Googling for, a, you know, a book of spiders to have on the slide. And there's this great fat book you can get called Australia's Most Dangerous Spiders. Not not just all the spiders, only the most dangerous ones. <laughs> But it's very close this to what Bill Burnback talked about, which is there's always a danger in marketing that we get obsessed with trends. 
and what's mm. changing and what's different. And Bill mm. Bernback always said, we spend too little time trying to appeal to what he called, bear in mind it was an age when man meant person. He said, mm. the unchanging man, by which he means man with a capital mm. M. You know, And he says, there are large aspects of human um, temperament and urge which haven't changed for thousands indeed you know mm. hundreds of thousands of years which is the urge to care for our children the urge to to enjoy some measure of esteem and respect from other people and there's very useful there's a New Zealand neuroscientist actually in um, operating in New York called David Rock who has a model called SCARF and it stands for status certainty autonomy relatedness which is is a little bit complicated but if you ever work on a loyalty program you'll understand what it means and f is fairness and the interesting thing is we all have instinctive beliefs and feelings about fairness about status about a love of certainty now what's important about those things is that none of them is actually a factor in mainstream economic models they understand utility which is more money is better than less money but mainstream economics doesn't understand the evolved concept of fairness, which is he got more than me for the same work. That isn't fair. There's actually a parable, of course, the parable of the vineyard, to those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, which is all about that. The, the second crop of workers turn up later and are paid the same as the people who turned up early in the morning and they grumble about it. And this might feature in my next book called Jesus is a Behavioural Economist, if I ever get to write it. But um, if you think about it, the parable of the lost sheep is about loss aversion. Um, but it's a very, very interesting point that this instinctive feeling about fairness, about just desserts, is there as an absolutely embedded instinct. You know, you could produce an ad showing someone treating someone unfairly, and you would essentially see a sense of outrage in response to that everywhere. And it's also true, not only in advertising, but in storytelling, Game of Thrones or Star Wars, you know, I am your, Luke, I am your father. There are certain things, incest and patricide have the power to shock everywhere. And equally, your characters in Game of Thrones, you're allowed to invent dragons, that's okay. All right, I'm Welsh, so I, I, I tend to believe in them anyway. But you're allowed to invent dragons, but the characters have to follow recognizable personality traits like caring about the welfare of their own children, without which science fiction would just be incomprehensible to us. We have to posit sort of organisms which have similar kind of motivations to us in those universals, because otherwise the storyline just wouldn't work. I think that is a, a really nice point and actually sort of brings me on to a question I was, I was going to ask you Rory which is sort of in, in the research you've suggested that um, evolutionary principles need not only apply to marketing and advertising and here it's sort of talking about those wider kind of contexts but actually um, you need to be consistent with evolutionary thinking. Um, are there any other domains you think could benefit from evolutionary psychology or just this sort of evolutionary thinking being a bit more embedded in those organizations uh, oh, or industries or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, product design, pricing, and what you might call modes of sale um, strike me an understanding of the human fear of uncertainty, that there's a heuristic, which is occasionally called minimax in decision science, which is when you have too much information to make a decision, you choose on the basis of whatever decision you can take where the worst case scenario is least bad. 
okay? And that it's called Minimax for complicated reasons. And I always argue that's why McDonald's is the most successful restaurant in the world. It's not necessarily a brilliant restaurant, but it's very good at not being terrible. You know, you won't get ill, you won't get ripped off, the food will taste okay. You know, the actual worst case scenario at McDonald's is still pretty good. Okay, it's probably better than the worst case scenario at a Michelin starred restaurant where you could be ripped off, extremely disappointed and get the shits, which has happened to me occasionally. Okay, Um, it's a higher variance. The the Michelin starred restaurant is a higher variance dining experience than McDonald's is. And it occurs to me, okay, uh, it occurs to me that solar panels, okay, they require me. Now, I'm, you know, in the wealthier 10% of the British population. I'm not going to write a check for $30,000 and take the risk, even though it's only a 1% risk, that the whole solar panel thing never works and turns out to be a rip-off or not save me any money. I'm just not going to do that, okay? However economically rational it will be on average for me to do so, I'm not going to take that small downside catastrophic risk. If someone could sell solar panels that were modular, So I could start off at £3,000 and make one room in my house solar. And then if I was happy, I could double down and make it £6,000. I reckon you could get solar panel penetration. I mean, even in Britain, never mind countries like Australia, where you actually get some sunshine occasionally. Okay, I think you could make solar panels rocket in popularity. But the current way in which the decision is presented is an all or nothing decision. And so those kind of questions in marketing, I think we need to look at from an evolutionary perspective, which is judging by the Minimax heuristic, no, nobody's going to take a £30,000 punt, no matter how economically beneficial the decision might be on average. And I think, I think that kind of understanding of how people really instinctively decide has a bearing on everything to do with you know, products, from the design of the product all the way down to how you market it and then how you advertise it. Totally. And Ian, is there any any other sort of specific area that either you've sort of worked in or you've seen or you just think could benefit a bit more from this evolutionary thinking? Yeah, just to just to build on Rory's point about the solar panels, you know, because in in Australia, it's a slightly different setup where the government subsidizes uh, households to put the panels on your roof uh, on the proviso that you send the electricity back to the grid. You see, uh, now you would think, you know, so why, why would I want to, <laughs> you know, let other people benefit from from uh, from my electricity? But you know, it's uh, you know, it, the more panels you have on your roof could be a sort of signalling device to to show how much uh, you know what a great person you are and how much you. Care about the community, you know, so it can put it can, it can work the other way from a reputational. Uh, it could have an ongoing selfish benefit. I mean, I always argue yeah. about soap, which is that P and G and Unilever, until antibiotics came along, really, it was those soap companies deserve the greatest credit for the improvement in human health and longevity. It wasn't mm-hmm. really medicine until you know the post-war era. It was hygiene, mm-hmm. sewage, sewerage mm-hmm. as well, also played a huge part. Now, most soap advertising didn't say wash with our soap and help prevent a cholera outbreak. 
the washing did, but soap was largely sold on very Darwinian principles, which was bluntly put, if you saw a soap ad in 1920, it said, if you don't wash with our soap, you will die single and alone. <laughs> okay, now it, it, it pretty much in 1920, it was pretty much as explicit as that, you know, always the bridesmaid, never the bride actually comes from a Listerine headline written by a female copywriter, interestingly, uh, mm. uh, you know, around about the 1920s. And so that very Darwinian thing about, uh, you know, partner maintenance was mm. the principal driver between in the increase in soap consumption, not an appeal to the public good. Uh, interesting. I was going to say that the, the other um, sort of area, uh, so, you know, I've been looking into recently is HR. Um, you know, I, it struck me that a lot of money is spent by HR and people in culture departments, you know, on things like unconscious bias training, which, uh, you know, is pretty much a racket, I think. It doesn't really uh, uh, do anything other than, you know, I think uh, it, it serves as a, a, again, as a sort of signaling device, you know, because we, you know, we are the type of company that, that conducts these, you know, types of things. But then what they do is sneakily afterwards, they come to us and say, now, can you actually help us solve our problem, you know, by looking at human nature and how people behave and relate to each other in the workplace and, you know, status competition and all those kind of things. So, uh, you know, I think that's, that's an expanding area that, that um, could still expand a bit more, I think, but um, where an evolutionary approach, you know, could be could be really useful. Just don't expect to get any publicity for uh, for doing it. You know. Brilliant. Thank you. And I, I wonder, off the back of that, if we, if we've been talking about the benefits of an evolutionary approach, um, perhaps it's a question for you, Lachazar. Um, I guess it's important to also note that evolutionary psychology is just another lens for people to use. It doesn't claim to be a silver bullet. It doesn't claim to have all the answers or be totally definitive. Um, what would you say are the, the main limitations for the evolutionary approach to sort of counter some of that thinking? Well, that's a great question, Jordan. Uh, to begin with, uh, it is important to know that uh, for sure, we're, uh, when, when we explain human behavior, we might talk about uh, uh, ultimate and proximate motives, but the word ultimate should not apply and should not uh, uh, be understood as uh, having superior power and superior explanation of power and uh, maybe two or three things are important to be noted uh, uh, right away the first thing being uh, that there are conceptual deficiencies uh, in explaining certain empirical phenomena uh, like uh, for, uh, for example suicide does not make a lot of uh, uh, sense in terms in evolutionary terms other points are that uh, uh, we researchers in the field uh, would sometimes uh, look at behaviors and traits and try to look for their uh, adaptive nature when in fact there might be none uh, and uh, they might be just byproducts of other traits and uh, behaviors we uh, use a term from the architecture which is uh, called spandrel which is uh, the space between columns that's left and uh, 
it's sometimes it's it's there because it needs to be there because of other elements like the columns that uh, are just mentioned and uh, probably the biggest uh, issue with uh, uh, the field is that uh, we don't have a clear picture of uh, the evolutionary uh, times when uh, and the era of evolutionary adaptiveness during which our behaviors and traits were formed. So the whole field is dependent on other uh, disciplines like uh, behavioral genetics or primatology or archaeology. So uh, we have to really pay attention to other disciplines and uh, in order to explain human behavior through an evolutionary lens. But nevertheless, I deeply believe that it's a competitive edge for marketers and advertisers, because if we are truly able to understand the uh, deep human motivations that uh, drive consumer behavior, uh, uh, here's uh, something related to what uh, Rory mentioned uh, about uh, Bill Birnbach. He also used to say that uh, it's uh, human nature that's uh, the uh, foundational element for understanding the consumer. And uh, if you understand those uh, needs, we could create products that cater to them and we can market them more effectively in order to establish a long-term relationship with the consumer base. So there is a question in the in, in the chat, which is, well, shouldn't we be appealing to the rational brain and not the limbic brain, as it were, not the lizard brain? And the simple question arises, you've got the lizard brain there, whether you like it or not. Evolution doesn't just apply from the neck down. It exists. And it is much easier to get people to change their behavior, whether it's rational or not, if you can get the limbic brain on side. And I think, you know, I think that's just a really important point. And the way I argue this is, look, we design physical objects to suit our evolved physique. OK, you know, if you have a stool, it has two little buttock indentations in it. Um, it's actually not really for comfort. It's so, you know, you're sitting centrally on the stool, I suspect. OK, but we design door handles to be at roughly the height of a human hand. And we design steering wheels to fit with the evolved human hand. Now, we didn't evolve hands to grip steering wheels, but we design physical objects to work with the bodies we've got. And so we should design experiences to work with the minds we've got. That's that's the way I always look at it. I don't think it's it's. I don't, by the way, I totally agree with um, uh, Lachazar there, which is it's a way of looking at things. It's not exclusive. It's not exhaustive. Um, it's simply another lens through which you can consider why people are or aren't doing something, which may or may not have explanatory value. So one thing I you know one thing I said I, I this was a government meeting in the UK. They said we need to encourage younger people to get more pensions. You know, because that rationally, purely economically, there are a lot of good reasons why you should start saving for a pension pretty young. And the first thing I said is we also value um, what you might call um, uh, autonomy. And a pension is not an autonomous savings vehicle. It says, give us your money now and you'll see it back in 30 years time. That's actually a massive loss in autonomy. If you designed a young person's pension uh, where effectively they could draw down money in the short term and then pay it back again it might have vastly more appeal but nobody's done that but the second thing i said is look i don't know anything about this i'm 55 years old but i'm willing to bet that if you go on tinder you won't see many people on tinder under the age of 50 
boasting about their pension provision. You know, so I said, you know, when people are that age, they have other priorities in life, i.e. showing off to prospective partners, which might actually trump their urge for long term saving. Because, of course, finding a good long term partner is also a long term decision. And so evolution probably might have conditioned us not to be particularly cautious around saving uh, earlier in life. And so, you know, it's worth remembering that don't expect the volume of pension saving among young people to match that which a purely economic model would suggest, because it probably isn't going to happen. There are probably quite a lot of 70 year olds on Tinder who boast quite a lot about their pension provision, but that's a different matter. I think we're ready to go to some of the audience questions, which Rory sort of beat me to a punch there a little bit, taking one. Uh, already, uh, no worries. Uh, I there's an interesting question here, uh, going right, right back to the beginning of the session. Uh, the fundamental motives uh, are 100% universal. It, how do you then account for neurodivergence or neurodiversity? How is how does that account to within the context of those 100% universal truths? One uh, thing, if I could come, come in on this, and then um, I think Lachazar can probably uh, add a lot more. But it's just to say that uh, I think it's a, a useful thing to consider that these are the, um, the sort of very basis of those behaviors or what might be motivating people. But actually, the execution can change a lot um, or should change a lot depending on who the audience is. So um, a, a quote I've heard is that ideas travel well, executions don't. Um, and so if you, uh, if you think about um, attaining status, for example, um, that is something that everyone around the world, no matter what culture you're in, um, that's something you'll respond to and that you'll identify with. But how you, um, how you attain that status is going to be very different depending on the culture. And so it's those kind of nuances that we have to be aware of, but actually we know that at the heart, what we're aiming to express, all the sort of elements that we're talking about can actually um, work very well, and we know they're going to work well um, across the world. Lachazar, I don't know if you had um, uh, other sure. thoughts on uh, I completely agree with uh, and support what Jordan just said that uh, status and status seeking is a very good example because uh, in different cultures, somebody who has the highest status might be the one that has the most possessions. And in other cultures, it would be the one that gives all his possessions away that he has, uh, she or he has the highest status. So there's, uh, for sure, elements of plasticity uh, and uh, uh, with regard to uh, local execution of all the fundamental motives. I think uh, the thing to remember about status competition is that it's, it's, re it's relative status, right? So I, I'm not competing for status with Prince Charles, right? Uh, because because that's a level of where I'm competing with my next door neighbor and or you know other people at, at, at my level in, in advertising so um and I think that's I think that is fairly universal uh, in terms of relative status uh, competition thank you there's there's another question here I think in terms of the examples that we were showing and it reminds me uh, of a campaign that failed miserably many years ago. It's it's basically saying that the examples we show really are an example of emotional marketing, or are they actually examples of the uh, of the 
of the values that we're, we're representing in evolutionary psychology. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the, when Ronald Reagan and, and Nancy Reagan were uh, in the White House. Uh, they started a campaign of say no to drugs. Uh, and there was a whole campaign around uh, two eggs frying in a skillet. Uh, and that's, this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs. And, and it was a very emotional uh, campaign and it ran for a very long time. Yet drug use only seemed to skyrocket during that time. And it was completely ineffective because it was emotional, but not really understanding mo people's motivations of why they take drugs. So it actually did the opposite. It was very emotional, but very ineffective. So I imagine there's a very big difference between using emotions and using effectiveness to, to drive change. Uh, any thoughts, uh, uh, especially uh, around the context of the examples that you showed, uh, whether uh, Lechisar, whether you, you can comment on that? Uh, the examples, yeah. some of the examples were surely emotional, probably other ones are, were less in terms of, but you know, it uh, depends on how you uh, look at emotion and, uh, and uh, which qualities, you know, for the most part, we define emotions as either having uh, uh, positive or negative balance. And uh, the second com component are, is how intense they are. So it could be more intense or less intense. And I believe that uh, when looking back at our examples, uh, many of them were high, highly intensive uh, and some of them were less intensive. For example, the, I, it, strikes, uh, it strikes me as uh, less intensive, uh, the campaign that we showed uh, that uh, featured uh, the it's the, the the keeping made campaign for Belgian lipstick mark your men I, I don't think it's so so intense so so emotional uh it also reminds me of how do, how do how did the uh, the uk and the us finally decrease their smoking habits it absolutely nothing to do with every intervention that we try to put in front of people even uh really disgusting packages of cigarettes never really did anything it actually was a po policy changes that, <laughs> that that basically motivated people to stop smoking because they could longer do it around their friends inside clubs and bars and and, and their workspace so i imagine it's, it's some there's something to that in this Rory, do you have any thoughts? I mean, that was also around social norms, of course, which is when you could no longer smoke in company and you're required to leave the building, you denormalized the pra practice. So there was quite a lot of network thinking because to some extent we've grown up two very strong evolved forces in behavior, uh, social copying and habit. And they make perfect sense in evolutionary terms because if lots of other people are eating the purple berries, okay, it's fairly reasonable to assume that the purple berries are safe. And so if we had a, if we'd evolved in a way where we didn't actually copy other people, we tried to find everything out for ourselves, it would be a very, very inefficient uh, informational environment in an evolutionary sense. And similarly, if you've eaten lots of purple berries before, and they've never made you ill, it's pretty safe to eat the purple berries going forward. So the extent to which people are cautiously motivated by both habit and social proof, both of those biases make perfect sense in evolutionary terms. Because, you know, in a world where you had to find everything out for yourself and you didn't copy other people, uh, you'd make three or four fatal mistakes before you even made it to uh, adulthood, really. 
And what do you think, uh, Ian, uh, about uh, value prioritization? And if we're able to put some frames on it to understand better the evolution of values, how values of people change over time, what kind of factors influence such changes, and if we are to predict value changes yet to come, how do you how do you feel that all fits within this context of the conversation? Uh, I, don't, I don't know how you predict uh, what, what's to come, but. Um... So see if this uh, sort of metaphor, you know, might go some way. Obviously, uh, values are a cultural uh, element, uh, and, and they differ uh, across across cultures. But I mean, you, you you could argue that you know human culture is a product of the human mind, which is a product of evolution. So culture is still a product uh, of evolution. But the the sort of uh, rather than the Swiss army knife metaphor, uh, the one I often use is, is if you think about the mind as, uh, or uh, the brain as an iPhone, right? And the mind is, a bunch, is the apps. And so, uh, you know, a, a, a brain is, is born with a, with a preset bunch of apps, but they lack data. And over the course of time, the apps fill up with that, you have an app for language, but depending on which culture you're born into, the language you know will be German or will be English uh, uh, or whatever. And I think I think uh, you know values being uh, you know part of culture, um, you know you'll have mechanisms for morality, uh, you know, and fairness, as Rory was talking about before, all of these things. But then the data that populates them will will be particular to the culture uh, uh, that you grew up in. And I, I assume that has some impact on the, on advertising. If we are to use evolutionary psychology as 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 another input into the creative process, especially uh, in sure. countries like India that are considered even multiple countries in one. Where the where cultures yeah. are different from one place to the other. Yeah, well, I mean, even in, in Australia here, where, you know, when I worked with uh, government, there was there was a mandate that you know X percent of any government budget was spent on was spent on uh, what they called culturally and linguistically diverse markets. You know, so um, uh, recognizing that. You know, certain times it's appropriate to communicate in the language. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, obviously in Australia, big Asian uh, population. So there was a lot of communicating uh, in language for uh, Chinese and Indian migrants, particularly. That, that's, a, that's a question that's come up now a couple of times, uh, Lechisar, yep. in, in your paper, this idea of universal truths or universal values or universal you know, principles They, you know, even uh, there is a questioner from uh, pro from Canada, I don't remember, probably the province of Quebec, where they said even 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 trying to do something that's local means you have to do various locals because there isn't just a single local. Uh, and then you have somebody in a country like India asking the same question you have. You, you don't have a single India, you have many, many Indias. It's, uh, it's a, uh -huh. Yeah, go ahead. It's a very good question, for sure. And uh, this is one of uh, the problems that I have with other cultural theories, like the ones of, of Hofstetter and its application in marketing. And uh, 
for example, if, if you use his course uh, in his dimensions, then a certain culture might uh, score or country might score, I don't know, let's say at 50% uh, at uncertainty avoidance, uh, but uh, you don't know whether there are, are subgroups within the culture we, that uh, are representative of this, of this mean. And if you design for the middle, it might turn out that uh, there are two groups, uh, subgroups uh, within this country or culture uh, that are, uh, score either very low or very high. And when you aim middle, you hit neither of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm that, conscious. That, sorry, Rory, one, sure. one second. I'll let you have your final thought in a second. Uh, I'm just conscious that we are at the hour. Uh, if you have to leave, I'm please do so. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for attending. Uh, we're really grateful for having you join us today for such a fascinating subject. If you can, we'll stay for another five minutes or so to finish, uh, have final thoughts. So uh, please thank you. If you have to leave, thank you for attending. Uh, and, and Rory, go ahead. No, I mean, if you take something like political disagreement, you could argue that a lot of it arises from different interpretations of the fairness instinct. Because there is fairness as egalitarianism, which is, uh, you know, to each according to his needs, as it were. And there's also fairness as in you keep what you catch in hunting, for example. And actually, of course, in, in primitive um, or hunter-gatherer societies, they tended to keep what they gather, but share, the, to some extent, the proceeds of a hunt. And, you know, so they actually had two different concepts of fairness, depending on whether it was gathered stuff where the amount of fruit you gathered was more or less proportionate to the work you put in. And then there was hunting where there was a high degree of luck and day-to-day uh, -day fortune involved, where there was some degree of redistribution. And you could argue that this disparity is still with us in a political divide today. Um, and so, you know, the, the fairness instinct is constant, but the way in which that is interpreted is uh, very very different it's quite interesting by the way politically because if you experiment with ideas like the guaranteed basic income the universal basic income oddly and that was actually popular with people like milton friedman and richard nixon the universal basic income oddly seems okay to people who are normally on the political right because it gives everybody the same amount of money after which you're differentially rewarded for effort so strangely Quite a lot of people misrepresent their own beliefs, that they have an instinctive reaction to something like inequality. But when they actually voice what it is they dislike, it isn't the real reason. It isn't the real why. So I think I think evolutionary psychology can help us probe some of the sources of human disagreement as well. I especially think that the, what you're speaking of is probably going to change in Ian and uh, Luchasar. I'm more conscious of that you probably are best suited to, to answer this, but I believe social media and the hive mind and the impact that it's had on society is probably going to have some effect in our evolutionary psychology moving yeah. forward. Already has, perhaps. It probably has yeah. already. Yeah, the, I mean, I guess the, pro the, the problem is the effects, you know, don't become apparent you know, for for generations, you know, it's got like biological evolution is quite slow, cultural evolution's fast, uh, yeah, quite fast, well, very fast, you know. So no doubt, I think you know, if you look back and you think what were pivotal kind of moments, you know, agricultural revolution was one, 
you know, uh, and I think the internet revolution is going to be another. But what the, what the effects of that uh, are going to be, uh, you know, we'll need to wait, you know, a thousand Absolutely. years probably. Absolutely, and and it's and it's probably even cultural evolution probably was very slow in comparison. Yeah. Uh, where you have people today that don't have no idea what a we know what a touch phone was. Uh, so uh, with that, I think, uh, thank you so much. It, it's, it was a fascinating conversation and I wish we could go on for much longer, but we don't want to say goodbye before reminding everyone our, our most amazing uh, behavioral science festival uh, that went virtual last year is going to be virtual again this year. I try to get some hybrid, right, Jordan? It's a hybrid version or something like that? What, what is it? Tell us a little bit about this year's. It is, yes. Um, we'll keep people in suspense. You'll have to wait and see. But yes, we will have some, obviously, live presenters, people from around the world. It'll be in various different time zones around the world, a full day um, of some amazing talks. We've got some fantastic speakers already. Um, so make sure you save the date, 11th of June. It's going to be brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ian, Lechisar, Jordan, and Rory, for a fascinating conversation. Thank you all uh, for attending. And uh, watch out. Thank you.